Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. So welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor podcast. And today I have a special guest. Um, This guest is down in the Fullerton area, Ed Hart for the past 10 years has been the director of the Center for Family Business at Cal State University Fullerton. Ed also hosts a podcast called From the Heart, and he'll tell us a little bit about that later. Ed is passionate about family business and does some business consulting. We'll talk about some of his case studies. Um, He's also a Dodgers and a Lakers fan, which in Los Angeles is a big news these days because we're both uh, winners. Um, so he, when he's not busy growing his business, he's, uh, spending time with his wife and seven grandchildren. So Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. It's really good to be here. It's nice to be on this side of the microphone and not be staring at my notes and asking you all the questions, although I'll probably have a few for you as well. Good. good I like that. So this is actually the first time we're meeting and I knew your predecessor, Mike Trueblood, because I gave a talk down there about 15 years ago. And so how long has the Cal State University uh, Fullerton Family Business Program been in existence? Tell us a little bit about the history of it. Sure. So it launched in 1995. So we are doing air quotes for those that are only listening and not watching. We're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. Congratulations. Air quotes mean we're doing it a little bit differently than we thought we would. Uh, You know, obviously we we had big plans for lots of... um, I guess if the opposite of virtual is literal, we had a lot of literal live events planned, but we've all gone virtual in this world that we're in in 2020. But uh, yeah, so launched in 95, we had uh, Dave and Judy Harmon founded it at the business school at Cal State Fullerton. Then Mike Trueblood came in about three years later, ran it for, I think, 11 or 12 years, retired at 81 Wow! Uh, in, in 2000 and what was that, 11. And that's when I came on board. So and yeah, so, so I've what, been doing this almost 10 years now. So tell me, so we're going to get to that and your why for doing this, but let's go back to um, the Harmons when they founded it. What was their why, do you think? Why did they start this? You know, I think this started, it even originated before their why, and that was Mass Mutual had recognized, and I'm probably going to you know, mess up the story somewhat, but my understanding was that they recognized that there was a, you know, the statistics as well as probably most people listening that 70% of businesses, depending on which periodical you read and and believe 70% of businesses around the world are family owned, but they recognized probably 30 years ago, not Dave and Judy necessarily, but mass mutual and other um, service providers that there just was a, a lack in family business education to help these families get from one generation to the next to help them resolve interfamily and intrafamily conflict and, and so forth and so on. So in 95 is when uh, apparently Mass Mutual approached Cal State Fullerton, the, the then dean at the business school, and Dave and Judy were both professors at Cal State Fullerton with a lot of family business background as well. So I think that there was just the perfect storm of there was a need, there was an opportunity, 
And there were two people who were willing and had the experience to jump right in. So they came in and founded it in 95. And then shortly thereafter, uh, brought Mike in, Mike Trueblood. Do you think that they had, you know, we talk about the term BHAG, uh, Jim Collins, big, hairy, mm-hmm. audacious goal. Did they have a, like a target, something they, you know, did they have a, an end zone? I know you're into sports. We talked about sure. Dodgers and Lakers. And so we know what winning looks like and when it happens. Did they have a, a game plan to win? And was it just, or was it just get out there and get the word out? Help you know, you know, I never met Dave. He passed, unfortunately, before I came into this role. I, I do know Judy. I have had that conversation, <clears throat> excuse me, with her a little bit. Uh, I think we've gotten bigger than they anticipated. It was founded with four family, uh, well, six family businesses, four of whom are still members of our center, two have sold. So they aren't technically family owned any longer. I don't think that the vision was to get, I mean, we've, we've grown it. We have about 60 family businesses now. So maybe we're not as big as they anticipated, you know, 25 years ago. We're certainly not as big as I anticipated 10 years ago, but I, I like the growth pattern that we're on and the trajectory that we have. I think we're growing the right way rather than just growing for the sake of growth. But I think that they envisioned that, that we would be a resource for family companies, whether we had families joining the center or just relying on the center and that's even my philosophy now, whether they join or not, we, we just want to be a resource for these families. And I think we are. Gotcha. So tell us a little bit about why your why, what your why is in joining this program. Uh, sure. I've worked for three different family companies in the past. I've never actually been part of one until now. My wife and I have a family owned consulting business. Uh, that's Heart Leadership Group. And we may go there. And if we don't, that's fine too. But um because I've worked for a handful of family businesses over my career, I'm 56. So I've been working basically 35 years since college and um, I've worked for the good, the bad and the ugly. And uh, you know, each of those families knows which one they are. (laughs) I've worked for a family business where the family was just dynamic and wonderful and salt of the earth and close friends to this day, but the business wasn't really successful. They didn't really have a lot of, and what they did well is they understood that they didn't have a lot of the expertise. So they reached outside a lot. So part of my role was in a a leadership role with that company to just kind of help them with some things. I worked for a family business that had a tremendous, had tremendous success, but the family was torn apart. And so, you know, they, they were very clearly more business focused than family focused and it showed and which eventually impacted the business. And then I worked for a family business, First American out of uh, Orange County, California, that um, was run by a, a, the Kennedy family and great family, great, just everything about that organization is one of my favorite jobs I've ever had because they not only were a family that really got it, but they were a business that really got it as well. So for me, being able to see that there are families out there that do it well, and there's a lot of families out there that really battle. Uh, it just became a passion for me. I mean, I landed in the job before it became a passion, quite honestly. Um, but as I started working with these families over the years, it became very clear to me that this is, I'm not going to use the words, it's where I'm meant to be. I mean, I've been in a lot of jobs where I felt like that was where I was meant to be. I think we're meant to do our best wherever we are. But for me, it, it's been the happiest I've been because I get to work with families that really recognize the families that join our center. I know it's a long answer and you're going to get used to me on this in a second, that that's what I tend to do. It's all good. Um, the families that come into our, our space to, to use the, the, the term um, are families that do get that they need some help. 
And so those are the families I enjoy working with the most because they understand, and it's not what Ed Hart does for them. It's what associating with our center and our service providers and really quite honestly, our other members, Jonathan, that's where most of the value is. I'm a connector. And so I love to see one family who's doing something well and find another family that might be battling in that particular area and put them together. Great. That, so that, that to me is my favorite thing about this. Job. I bet. I bet. Well, um, so are you guys running peer groups down there? Is that one of the things that you focus in on? And uh, yeah. we are, yeah, we have um, at last count seven peer groups. So I want to grow that, but we have a women CEO group. We have, Great. Two different, just generic CEO groups that just happen to be men. They weren't set up that way, but because we have the women group, the women tend to naturally gravitate towards that group. But then we have some next generation groups as well. Leaders that are either recently in the leadership role in their company or heading that direction. We launched a couple of years ago, a non-family executive group, which is just that you're an executive in a company, but it's not your family. You face challenges and issues as well. And great, obviously, like I mentioned, my experience, that's a group I would have been in had I been a member of the center with the companies where I worked before, because, you know, there's, you know, not having the, the, the last name of the ownership, you face challenges, but you also have opportunities because they brought you in for a reason. And then we're in the process of launching I say process, I guess we're in the planning process would mean that we're already started. So we're, we're in, in the planning stages for launching what I call a 1622 group. And those are ages. So there's a lot of 16 to 22 year olds that are being raised by a family that has a family business and they're trying to make a decision. Where do I go to college? What do I study? Do I go into the business? Can I learn from other family businesses instead of my dad or my mom? And so the vision for that group that we haven't launched yet, but we're planning to, is just that, to give these you know, young, po- young folks an opportunity to make more of an educated decision, give them some business acumen, give them some you know, history of their own family business education, bring in outside experts like yourself and others that we work with that maybe can work with these, fa- these, these young folks as they really try to make that decision. Well, that one sounds like a fun group. If you need a volunteer to lead that group, uh, yeah, I can think of nothing, you know, what a great be careful chance what to, you offer because I'm, I know, I know. Like, do, yeah. But it sounds like it would be so much fun to be a fly on the wall, listening to 16 to 20 year olds talk about their future and their options. Yeah. And um, so very, very interesting. And, and with just, our virtual world that we're in now, the, you know, I'm, I'm talking with, um, a woman on the East coast who wants to do this as well. And now that we're in this virtual environment, we're probably going to put together the group that's more of a national group. So there could be high school and college kids from anywhere in the same group. Brilliant. Love it. So unique. So, um, so I don't want to gloss over the fact that you said that good, bad, and ugly, which is, um, and I kept thinking, okay, we, what one company is going to be the good one company is going to be the bad one company is going to be the ugly. But the truth was that there was a little bit of good, bad, and ugly, maybe in each one, perhaps except the Kennedy one, which sounded like it was almost flawless. Like, you know, yeah. well, I mean, no, no company's flawless, obviously. No, of course. uh, Yeah. (laughs) But so that's very interesting. So let's talk about, you said, you know, um, members come to the family business program wanting to learn things. So, so what's top on their list? Like what are the top three to five things that they want to come learn? 
You know, I'll use the generic term succession planning very generically, and you, you know as well as I do and anybody listening that succession planning has a lot of facets. It could be succession planning from a wealth management standpoint. You know, how do I pass, how do I decide what percent, percentage of ownership or how to divvy it up? Or do the kids buy into the business? Do they inherit the business? Do I give it to them while I'm still around? And none of those is the right answer. And all of those is the right answer. It really depends on the situation. Their succession planning from the standpoint of leadership development is little Johnny or little Johnny and Susie ready to take over? Do they have the experience? You know, the, the wisdom that's in the family business arena that we typically, and that goes back to the 1622 group is um, ideally these kids will get an opportunity to go get an. We always tell our families, go tell your kids, go get an education, college education, go get a job somewhere else, learn what it's like to have to move up the ranks <clears throat> to, to work to not be in a job because, and not that you're going to be in the job because it's your family, but there are some that have that perception that, and that was one of the bad that I worked for is, you know, the kids would graduate from high school and they went right into a management job. Terrible. And some were good. Some were really good. And some of the managers that I met in that family business were just outstanding leaders. Um, just because the dice landed on the right numbers, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But in but other cases, just, yeah, you got to get that education and you got to get that opportunity to, to learn somewhere else. So, so that's a big part of it. The succession planning of just, you know, looking at the big picture of succession planning and all those areas. And then some conflict resolution, obviously, you know, I tell mm -hmm. people that, you know, people who don't understand what you and I do for a living, you know, if you have a family, you have conflict. If you have a job, you have conflict. Well now put the two together. And so we Double try to trouble. help these families. Yeah, it could be. Absolutely. And so a lot of what we do is, you know, these families are looking for just, just guidance. You know, they've been entrenched in their business for so long, perhaps that they, there are some that didn't get the college education. And so we can be that arm for them. Uh, there are some who don't really know. I'll give you a quick, quick, quick story. Jeannie Buss, the owner of the Los Angeles Lakers, since you brought up the Lakers and my sports fandom, been a Laker fan my whole life. Jeannie and her dad, Dr. Jerry Buss, who passed away a few years ago, uh, were, and she still is the owner of the Lakers family business. We host every year a family business hall of fame event down here in Orange County, where we honor three or four family owned companies for excellence in a variety of categories. But we also, and we do it at the Richard Nixon library. We wanted to do it at a nice venue, which we've chosen. And we've just stayed there every year because they do such a great job. And we wanted to get a really high profile keynote speaker. I mean, we've had Dr. Ken Blanchard. We've had Lindsay Snyder of In-N-Out. We've had, you see the bottles behind me. This is Charles Krug Winery up in Napa Valley. Peter Mondavi was scheduled to be our speaker this year, but we got COVIDed out. So we weren't able to do it. But the very first event we did was Jeannie Buss, owner of the Lakers. And she and I have some mutual friends and that's how I reached her. And long story of how we got her, but the night that she spoke, she looked around this room of 300 plus people and said, I didn't realize family business was even a thing. I thought just my dad owned the Lakers and passed it to me. I didn't realize 70% of businesses are family owned and families have these, there are other families out there that have the same issues we do. So I think a lot of it is just these families really, I don't know if enjoy is the right word necessarily, but they get some peace in knowing that, I guess what the misery loves company comes to mind. It's not that they're, you know, there's misery, but um, 
they do enjoy knowing that there are others that are going through similar issues. And that, as I mentioned before, the real value is these families networking with each other. So let's talk about there's a, you know, my book, as it was, you know, is Disruptive Successor. It's written for the next generation leader. And it's speaking to the leader but with a message of, hey, look, you know, what got you here is not going to get you there. And if you have a big there, like a two to 10x, uh, some BHAG, a three-year highly achievable goal that's, you know, that might be very different than your predecessor, maybe it's your father, maybe it's the founder, um, there's a conversation that needs to ha be had between the two. So um, we clearly know that the needs of baby boomers, older folks, and those of younger people, Gen X, millennials are different. How have you observed conversations, dialogues going on either in your program or, you know, I mean, I'd like to talk about the program, but if, you know, sure. maybe you see it in your consulting practice as well, like, how is that happening? How is it being facilitated? What's the richness of the conversation? You know, are they happening in the peer groups or is it happening in the general education? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a really, really great question. And there's not a simple answer, but I'll tell you in the ideal scenario, I think that we've, I don't know if it's just because I've become more aware of it in the last 10 years, or if it's always been this way, but it's just now I'm seeing all these books on intergenerational conversation, if you will. You know, how does a baby boomer talk to a millennial? Uh, we did a workshop on Halloween, ironically, this time of year, a few years ago that we called talk or tweet you know, kind of a playoff, a trick or treat, but right. you know, you got the gen older generation that wants to talk through things, you know, come in my office and let's talk this through. And the younger generation that grew up in the social media environment where right. sometimes they might tweet about their family issues, you know, and you just, my generation's like, you don't do that, but younger, that's how they communicate. Te texting. Again, I'm not going to make, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to make broad brush statements here, but obviously, you know, when you and I were growing up, social media wasn't a thing. So I think that the first thing is just to help these families. And what I'm seeing is recognizing the difference in how generations see things. Um, you and I grew up, I mean, I was born in 64. I'm the last of the baby boomer generation. You know, I've seen a few wars. I've never been to war, but I've seen a few wars. I've seen a lot of revolutions from information to, to technology, to you know, the very industrial, all these different revolutions, if you will. And so there's a lot of different ways to see things. And I think that the first thing that we try to do, whether it's me personally or the consultants I work with, or just in our center events, help these different generations just come together in the same room and talk. We've set up a lot of mentor mentee opportunities. A lot of our family businesses and the leaders that are kind of at the sunset of their career are looking for opportunities to, to reach out, not just within their family, but many of them say, hey, if there's a young person who is just getting started in another company, another industry or what have you, I'd love to meet with them if they're interested. So oh, that's great. I think a lot of the peer group stuff that we're doing is, is heading that direction. Not all of them are doing it in our groups now because it's mostly you're in a group with your peers. But what I have noticed is the older generational peer groups that we have are tending to get really close to the kids of their peers in their group. So, you know, John Smith with ABC company and yep. Susie Johnson of XYZ company, both are, are 65 and have young kids. And then they mentor the other child, the other person's kid, for example. So, That's so good. I think one of the most uh, valuable experiences I had was 
um, being hooked up through uh, a young man's Jewish big brother, where I became his really like his first employer. And he came to me as a 19 year old and I'm, I was probably, this is 10 years ago. So I was 52 and I looked at him and was like, Hey, like you're 19. Like what, what can you do? <laughs> can you, yeah. Do you have yeah. any skills? And right. like, well, I'm really good with computers and I'm really good with video and, you know, I can make almost make like my own movie and, you know, we were off and running and that yeah. he is today the producer of this podcast. If he's listening. Well, and that's, a, and that's awesome that you approached it the way you did. A lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of us would have approached that with, well, you're 19. What can you do? You know, it's how you emphasize yeah. the words, Yeah. you know, almost kind of a derogatory 100%. or condescending, but you did it more from a, Hey, I want to know. Well, I, I think the, the big brother, big sister concept program is a great learning model. Um, when it's not your own kid, it, it's much easier. So yeah, absolutely. Take the, that's right. why these radio psychologists work so well because there's no emotion. Exactly. You know, someone can call into Dr. Laura and in five minutes, problem solved. Yeah. You know, whereas yeah. I've talked to my therapist for 15 years and I'm no closer to the issue. Right. Let alone solving it. So, right. Yeah. yeah. We don't know what happens to those callers after uh, she hangs yeah, yeah. up, but, uh, but yeah. yeah, she solved it. So, yeah. all right. So we're in a pandemic. People are working from home increasingly. Uh, we've got a challenge, which is we have a technology gap. So the, the texter, tweeter, you know, mm -hmm. knows how to communicate and deal with things quite well. They know how to even get their computer and their microphone and their camera and, you know, doing Zoom. But the older guy at home, he may be thinking like, God, I just would rather be in the office. People take care of this stuff. I, I don't know how to locate files. I don't know how to put this. And, you know, what are you seeing at all in some of the family businesses with the challenges just, you know, in terms of the age gap and the knowledge gap in terms of technology? Well, I'll tell you, I'll go back to that good, bad, and ugly for a minute <clears throat> since I brought that up earlier and you, you brought it back in. The good that I'm seeing, well, let me start with the ugly. The ugly that I'm seeing is that there's this fear. And I, I work with a lot of older folks in different family businesses. And yes, you know who you are, but I won't say your name, who have reached out to me and said, how do I Zoom? My dad's 93 years old, okay? He's very active. He, you know, he tweets. Well, he doesn't tweet. He texts and he <laughs> does Facebook posts and so forth. But um he has learned Zoom and he's realized it's a great tool for staying in touch with grandkids, kids, great grandkids, friends, uh, because he can't get out. He's a very social person. And so he'll get on, on Zoom and, and interact. But I think that, you know, with a lot of the older generation and even, you know, I'll, I'll lump myself into that. You know, I'm 56. You know, it's not like I, you know, a year ago, if somebody said, hey, let's do a Zoom call. I'd beg them, no, can we just make it a phone call? Now, if somebody says, can we do a phone call? I beg them, can we make it a Zoom call? Because yeah. it's easier and I want to see you. Exactly. You know, I'm very much would rather interact face-to-face -face with somebody than just over the phone. So I think that what's happened is I think as people are realizing, so, you know, the good, bad, the ugly, I'll, I'll, you know, I didn't really talk about the ugly, but the, the good stuff that I'm seeing is a, a lot of things, actually. The first good thing that I'm seeing is in March and April, when we all started coming home, you know, so to speak, you know, I Cal State Fullerton shut down and we were told, you know, March 16th ish that we'd be working from home indefinitely. I don't think any of us thought indefinitely would be eight months to 18 months, which is kind of where we're heading, I think. Right. Um, but um, 
what's happened is that we're recognizing that, you know, yeah, there's, there's ways that we can connect with a lot more people right now doing this. But also I think what's happened for the younger generation in family business, you know, the first age group that was told go home were the 65 years old and older. And literally within days, we were all told to go home. But for a few days anyway, the 65-year-olds, which most family businesses are run by somebody older than that. The, mm-hmm. the, the now generation, I call them, hasn't left yet, mm-hmm. hasn't turned it over yet. <clears throat> but what's happened was because they couldn't be in the office, even in an essential company, the younger generation was really forced into a leadership role, maybe even before they were ready which can be ugly, can be bad. If you're not ready, you're not ready. I mean, time is oftentimes the only thing that really teaches us and experience you. Just because you put CEO on my door tomorrow doesn't mean I'm ready to be the CEO. No, it does I have not. to be, I have to be. Right. So I think that, yeah, so I think that, you know, the, the again, here I go again, the long-winded answer to your short question is that the opportunities for for growth and for learning and for, you know, frying pan into the fire and learning, if you will, for all of us, for the older generation who, if I want to stay in touch with my people, I got to learn technology for the younger generation. Gosh, I might be in a leadership role now that I wasn't ready for. So I better just roll up my shirt sleeves and, and get at it. And um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's, that, those are really the big things I've seen. It's just, it's created more opportunity. I mean, I, you, like you, I'll have days where I'll have six or seven or eight Zoom calls in a day and I, it's like chain smoking, you know, you light the next cigarette with the last one. It's like, you know, I, I, hit, I, hit, I hit the X in the top right-hand corner of my screen when you and I are done only to launch the next call. But, yep. um, so, so, yeah, it's given us opportunity to, to, to learn. Well, let's, let's switch gears a little bit because uh, there's a case of wine behind you and there's a story there. There you go. And uh, one thing that I have a belief about with wine is uh, a bottle of wine is to be open and, and shared with a family or friends. And uh, I don't I'll ever open a bottle of wine by myself because yeah. I can't finish it by myself and I don't enjoy it so much by myself. So I love to hear the story of, of Charles Krug, but first what and we know wine by the way wine is an industry that's very popular in california it's a growing industry you probably can give us some data points on that but what are the other industries that are very family dominated and and uh uh, maybe in california or or elsewhere what what are you seeing i think yeah the first one that comes to mind and i'm probably missing several but the very first one is food and beverage in general yep um we teach a family business dynamics class on Monday nights at Cal State Fullerton, which we're now doing on Zoom for the first time. It's always been in person. And we had a field trip last year to Vietnam for 10 days mm. with our class and took them and visited a lot of different manufacturing and textile companies over there. Um, but in our class now, we have about 30 students. And I believe more than half, well, probably 20 of the 30 are in family businesses and half of those 20 are in the food and beverage space, restaurants, beverages, what have you. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, allergies are one of my least <clears throat> favorite things. And with the oh. fires and the winds that we've had down here, we're fine today, but yeah. we've been exposed to a lot of fires in the last few days. So yeah, I, I'm sorry to hear that. It's yeah, everybody's safe in my family and my friends now. So that's, oh, good. that's a good that's, thing. Uh, but yeah, so I see a lot of food and beverage. I think manufacturing is big. You know, it's been tough because it's gotten harder and harder to do business in California. And this, isn't a, this isn't a political podcast, but 
you know, it's hard to talk about anything these days without politics. Here we are at the time of recording right up heading into the 2020 election. Next well, week. And, and my first guest, by the way, was someone I wonder if you have much of dealings with uh, Robert Ravinius. He is the okay, executive yeah, FBA, director sure. of the Family Business Association of California, the only yeah. family business association that's located at a state capital and that's involved um, as a 501c6 in mm-hmm. lobbying uh, for political stuff. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we won't sidebar into that yeah. quite yet. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah. So I think that, you know, family. So, yeah, just last thing on that. So, obviously, a lot of food and beverage, a lot of manufacturing, um, and they're all you know, we have some that are just thriving because they're essential. You know, we have a couple of companies in the cleaning and restoration and Mm -hmm. sanitization industry. And obviously that's huge right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a few grocery store chains that are family owned. Northgate Gonzalez Markets is one of the largest Hispanic family businesses in the country and uh, 40 plus stores, mostly Southern California. And they're thriving because the growth, you know, everybody needs food. Yep. I'm working um, with a landscaper that's thriving, a, co- a roofing company that's thriving. Uh, the DIY environment, you know, the and, the hardware stores and everything. I've got three within a mile of my house and we're frequent customers at all of them. So Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Everyone's doing uh, home improvements. Yeah. All right. So so tell us about the Charles Krug family. Uh, give us a little sure. case study on this company. Yeah, and I'll, I'll share just a little bit I know. I, <clears throat> and um, in full disclosure, I spent 32 years in the Mormon church up until mm-hmm. I was 50. I'm 56 now, so I've been out of the church, and that's a whole other episode of another podcast, probably. Right. So only for six years. So for 32 years, I didn't drink. And um, good for you. you And I don't drink a lot now, but when my friends all found out that I was leaving Mormonism, um, the first thing they did was say, "Well, what beer do you like? What coffee do you like? What wine do you like?" Like, (laughs) I don't know. I've never had the stuff. So, (laughs) not that I'm all uh, a beer drinking wino who IVs coffee all day now, but. I do enjoy a good cup of coffee and I do enjoy a glass of wine from time to time. And like you said, um, drinking is, is, it's a social thing. You know, it used to be over lunch or dinner and, you know, on a weekend with, with friends or even clients and so forth from time to time. But um, going back to the hall of fame, as I mentioned before, you know, where we've had Jeannie Buss and Lindsay Snyder and Ken Blanchard and others this year, we were scheduled to have um, Peter Mondavi Jr., who was the, the, it's, it's Charles Krug Char, uh, uh, slash C. Mondavi family winery up in Napa. And um, because that event didn't happen because of the pandemic, we started doing events every week on Fridays, my wife and I, and then the center, we decided to do just a, a weekly, what we called coping in times like these zoom call, just anybody that wants to come on, you know, there's eight of us or 80 of us. Sometimes it'd be the topic or the speaker. Sometimes it would just be a support group for 90 minutes. Hey, what are you, how are you coping this week? Yeah. You know, it's yep. Friday afternoon. Tell us about your week. What went well? What are you struggling with? How can we help? Not we, us, but how can we as a group on this call help each other? About eight or 10 weeks into it, we changed the name from coping in times like these to thriving in times like these because we realized, okay, coping is early. You know, we're reacting. We're having to figure out how to get people on technology and work from home, as you alluded to earlier. Now we're more into, okay, we got to still work. We got to thrive. We got to succeed. So anyway, back to Charles Krug. So Peter was going to be our speaker in April. 
um, I had invited him on to some of our meetings and he said, Hey, you know, I have a CEO who's not family, but who's worked in the wine business for 40 years, Judd Wallenbrock, you should meet Judd. And so Judd was on one of my next calls and, and Judd and I just, Judd and I have never met in person yet. We will, but not yet. Cause I haven't been in Napa and he hasn't been here since March, but we've texted. We're both baseball fans. His brother is a, a hitting guru. He's taught a lot of major league baseball hitting coaches, how to be coaches and how to hit. And a lot of the world champion Dodgers, which I love to say now, it's been 48 hours. I love saying it, um, <laughs> have learned how to hit from him. Or, or have mastered their craft from him. But Judd has been in the wine business for, like I said, four decades. And, and uh, one thing that I am proud of in my choice of career and working with these families is I, I become an advocate for the families that I work with and that I represent. Um, we're in a good position that we can pick and choose who we work with. And um, we've just got some great families, you know, and, and not all the families are are in the good category and not all yep. of them are in the bad or the ugly either. And, <clears throat> but um, pardon me, but so I've just been getting to know the Charles Krug, you know, I've gotten to know Peter pretty well. I've gotten to know Judd really well. Um, as I'm learning which wines I like, I tend to be more brand conscious. You know, if I get a burger, it's in and out. If I get uh you know, if I go to a grocery store, it's Northgate. If I get coffee, it's Gavinia. And here I am promoting all my families now, but happily to do so. Right. Um, and so it's, you know, so their family business is great. I mean, they've, they are doing some great things. They recognized the Mondavi family that they didn't know at all. You know, they've got the history and they've got the lineage and the legacy of the winery, but um, the Mondavi brothers now, Mark and, and Peter are great leaders in their own right and know their business and their industry pretty well, but bringing in Judd three or four years ago to be their CEO, they say is one of the best things they've done. Bringing in that non-family executive that really well, can take it to the next level. I imagine it is a very uh, challenging industry. Um, you're dealing with a yeah. perishable product, uh, which has uh, got inconsistent manufacturing uh, unless you've got great processes. Um, it's an expanding industry. And yet I'm not sure, because I just don't know, um, are there more people drinking more wine? So unless more people are drinking more wines, if you've got more wineries, vineyards, you know, even people are doing it at home, uh, you know, the market eventually gets flooded, which would drop prices. So, um, but I imagine that there's, what I suspect is there's some very large players who have consolidated and are doing quite well. They own multiple brands. And then there's a whole lot of independent little individual brands. And for some, it's a tax write-off. Uh, um, I, I have some clients that are in the horticulture industry. And so they have a small vineyard on the side or you sure. know, they make a small batch of wines. Um, but I imagine it's a tough business to be in. I think it, yeah, I think it's a lot like the, uh, <clears throat> the beer industry too, which I don't know much about at all, but I do Same know thing. that the craft beers are really popular now. You know, people will go drink the national brands because you know what you're getting. Like if you go to McDonald's, you know, you're getting that Big Mac in Ecuador is going to be the same as it is in, right. you know, wherever name, a name, a city, a country, a place. And I think that with the big brand wines and, and beers and so forth, you know that as well. But I think a lot of people do like supporting quote unquote, the little guy. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I do think, especially in the last eight or nine months of this pandemic, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate. I think, you know, I have heard the numbers that alcohol consumption is up. Yeah. Um, that's probably unfortunately with that. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, the bad comes with that as well. Yeah. But, um, I know in my house it is, and it's not a problem. I mean, my wife barely drinks. And like you said, I'll have a, I'll open a bottle of wine when somebody's over or I'll oh. take one with me if I'm going like, you know, I went and watched the last game of the world series with my dad and I brought a bottle with me and we each had a glass and now the bottle's sitting at his house for next time I'm over there, you know? Sure. So, but the suspicions that uh, anxiety is fueling more alcoholism, addictions and mental illness is probably a, uh, well, I don't know if it's studied yet, but it's probably well-founded. So, so let me yeah. switch gears and let, let me ask you, um, let me start to wrap up here. Are you seeing a trend where owners of families' businesses are what my friend who wrote a book by the same title are doing? He calls it half-retire. So they, they stay in the business because they still love the business. They really, they don't know what to do. I mean, if you don't know what you want to do when you leave your business, then you should stay in your business probably until you figure that out because you don't want to be pushed out. You want to be pulled towards something else, art, travel, you know, spending more time with your loved ones, your grandchildren, whatever that is. But um, I'm suspicious expecting that this now, especially with the, uh, the pandemic sort of maybe crushing some people's uh, financial situation, that they might stick around longer and half yeah. retire while the you know, kid takes over, and, but they're still in the game. You seeing that? I'm seeing extremes both ways. I'm seeing, yes, to your first point, there are a lot more that are worried about their financials more now than ever before. And they always were concerned about them, but now there's probably aware of or concern has shifted to worry in many ways because of what's happening right now. Um, I'm also seeing some who are saying, look, maybe this is the writing on the wall I've been looking for. You know, I couldn't go to work. Like I said earlier, I couldn't go to work in March because I'm 65 or older and, you know, daughter and son are doing a pretty good job. Um, so there's some of that too. I've always encouraged the family businesses. I work with a lot of these, again, I'll use that term now gen because we know what next gen is. The now gen is the person running the company today. And oftentimes I'll tell these dads and these moms, wouldn't it be great to quote unquote retire, even if it's semi retired, like you said, um, half retire um, and still be able to watch your, your child run the business and be an, an advisor and a mentor, maybe be a chairman of the board or what have you, maybe, you know, pull into the parking lot, you know, figuratively speaking with the engine still running and walk in and just kind of see how things are going and shake a few hands, maybe call on a couple of clients here and there and then go off and play golf or fish or travel with your spouse or, hang out with the grandkids or all those things you probably do a little bit of right now. One of my favorite retirement stories is actually not family business at all. A woman that used to work at Cal State Fullerton in our management department retired probably maybe five years ago. And on her last day, she popped her head into my door just to say goodbye. Basically we didn't work real, real close together, but I knew her well. And um, I asked her, I said, so what are you going to do differently now? And her words were not come here. And I know she meant that she didn't mean that. And I hated it here because she worked there for 30 plus years, but it, it, it inspired me to write a blog. And the blog entry was all about how 
because I asked her, well, what do you mean by that? She said, well, I used to spend a little bit of time gardening and a little bit of time with my grandkids and a little bit of time traveling and a little bit of time with my spouse and a little bit of time with friends and a little bit of time golfing and a little bit of time in the community. And, but most of my time was here. Now I'm shifting. Now I'll come back and have lunch with people here from time to time, but now I'm going to spend a lot of my time in those areas. So the advice that, yeah, the advice that I've given to people anywhere I've gone, even those that don't ask, <laughs> the worst advice is the advice that's unsolicited, but here I go. Right. Um, is prepare now. I don't care if you're 30 or 70, get some things going in your life so that when you do retire, you don't have that. Now, what do I do? You know, on the flip side, I'm sitting at a coffee shop a couple of years ago with a buddy of mine next to an older gentleman, probably in his late seventies doing a crossword puzzle. And so I just asked him, Hey, what's your story? You know, just, I love people's stories. That's why I started my podcast. Mm-hmm. And, um, he said, well, I worked for 40 years, same company, family company. Turned out he told me the name and it was a company I knew. Um, and when I retired, my wife said, you're invading my space. I've had this house to myself for 40 years. You've always gone to work. I love you. I like you, but I don't want you around from eight to five because this is when I do my stuff. You know, she was so accustomed to him being home at night and he was so accustomed to not being there in the daytime. And to me, it was just really tragic. Yeah. You know, and they still travel and they still, he was telling me, Hey, it's still great. He goes, don't get me wrong. Right. We don't hate each other. Right. But, but Star- it's just, <clears throat> we got into our habits. Starbucks has become his home away from home because he's, and that's exactly where I was. That's yeah. Too bad. Okay. Well, just sitting we, playing. Yeah. So, yeah. So just get involved in things, figure out what you like now sure. and start doing some of it. Sure. Well, I, I think it was uh, the BC Forbes who said the business of living is living, not business. So, Absolutely. you know, make your life, uh, make your goals, set your vision around your life and have your business fit into it, not the other way around. So 100% agree. All right. I have, I'll have no trouble retiring. I know I'm, I'm 56. I'm a long ways out, but yep. I'm very clear what my life's going to look like when I retire. It's going to be a lot more of the stuff I really love doing now. Oh, that's fantastic. So, uh, all right. Tell us, uh, quickly, what are three things that you love to do that, uh, you'd like to share with the audience? I love to travel. My wife and I, um, are at a point now, well, not now it's 2020, but prior to 2020, where if I had a business trip, she'd go with me and that'll happen again. You know, we like to spend time. We've had the good fortune of being in South America and Hawaii and all over the U S and Canada with work mostly. Okay. Um, love to play golf golf. Okay. So, you know, I could give you more than three, but yeah, travel, these, these all tie together. All of them have to do with spending time with Lori and my wife too. We've been friends, best friends since high school and, you know, married for a long time, seven grandsons now. And, um, Mostly here in Southern California, we have three that are out of state. So yeah, just time with family, time on the golf course, time traveling, not time traveling. I'd love to time travel, but you know, spending time traveling. <laughs> if time travel becomes a thing, yeah. Okay. But uh, yeah, just, just hanging out with her and seeing the family and more time with friends and sporting Beautiful. events and reading and just. Beautiful. Beautiful. So uh, no wonder your podcast is called From the Heart. Sounds like you do like to do heart-centered things and have a great relationship. Ed, how do people get a hold of you and uh, what, what's your contact information? Sure. So I'm on all the social media, heart underscore leadership or heart leadership. Heart is H-A-R-T, my last name. 
website, heartleadership.com. The podcast, as you mentioned, is from the heart. And it really just started with having heart to heart conversations with people. And my final question of every podcast that I do is I'll ask, you know, what's in your heart? And because I can look at your resume or your Wikipedia or go on Google and read all about Jonathan Goldhill, but to really get to know Jonathan Goldhill, I need to ask the question and maybe I will. So Jonathan, what's in your heart? Throwing it back at you now for a minute. Yeah. So good question. So what's in my heart right now is to get this message out. And the message is that there's a community of family businesses out there. They're wonderful to work with. I love working with them so much um, that I want to work with more of them. Mm-hmm. And that that's been my purpose is guiding uh, people towards their freedom. And so guiding family towards families towards their freedom would also be in my heart. And so I'm hoping that my book, this podcast, uh, podcasts of the people that come on my show uh, reaches a a bigger community and that uh, a community really forms out of this. So I really love what you're doing at Cal State University Fullerton. Um, I'd love to come in and be a, a guest speaker to the, you know, Please. or, or yeah. facilitator for the 16 to 22 year olds, uh, yeah. um, participate in your peer groups, whatever. I think it sounds like a lot of fun. And I'd we, love that. And I'd love for us to, you know, we have very similar missions and visions for not only what we do, but why we do it. And I would love to collaborate with you in any way possible. Sounds great. All right. So folks, you heard it here, Jonathan Goldhill, Uh, business coach and host of the Disruptive Successor podcast, a show by, for, and about family businesses. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.